All right. There is something about a sunrise that is captivating. You know, my family really enjoys being able to see sunrises. Where we live, uh, we're able to a lot of times be able to see a beautiful sunrise each morning. And um, watching the colors and just how, how the, the clouds, how the, the colors just kind of come together, just how beautiful that it is. You know, God didn't have to make the light bend the way it does uh, and make the reds and the oranges and the pinks and the purples and just that the beauty that he created. He didn't have to make it so extravagant, but, but he did, right? And we live in a world full of other captivating things as well, right? Some captivating things are worthy of honor, and, and they point to God, and they, they just captivate the, 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 the majesty of God, and, and they're good. But a lot of things we're captivated by in this world are not so good, right? So uh, others, others, other evil things in this world are so quick to captivate people. Sadly, many people are drawn to those things and, and they become captives to those things. They, they become prisoners to those things. Yet being captivated by God and being a captive to God is actually to experience liberty. And the world doesn't see that. Uh, and I hope we as believers do see that. Um, being, having uh, faith in Christ alone frees you from being captive to sin. The captivity of back, of, from God uh, brings us freedom. However, captivity to the world and the things of this world are chains of bondage. So let's join me as we read this wonderful scripture here. It's a very tough scripture. Only three verses, Colossians 2. We're going to read 8 through 10. So kind of join me as we read God's word. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, God. These three verses just have so much to unpack. And God, I just pray that you give us, just multiply our time as we, as we uh, hit on these verses, as we try to understand them, as we try to apply them to our own lives. God, open up our hearts and our minds to understand your word uh, to be able to use your word and apply it to our lives, God. Help us to be changed by it, Lord. And God, I pray against the, 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 cap, the captivity of this world that so many are in, enslaved to, the captivity of sin. And God, I pray that, that if anyone here is ca- captive to sin and not to you, not freed, that their chains are not broken, that they have their, their hearts open, their minds open, that you be drawing them to you and that you bring salvation. This day, today is the day of salvation, Lord. We, we pray that that be the case for somebody here, at least. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Help us to really just enjoy learning more about you and digging into your word. Amen. So we're going to have just two points today. I know that's kind of different for me. I'm usually a three-pointer, uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the post this time. You know, you got the three-point shooter, now I'm going to be the, the post player. So the first one is, you can be captivated by the world. Uh, so I'm going to just read that again, verse, verse 8. You can be captivated by the world. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So see to it is the way that Paul segues into this scripture. And it really means to be on guard, to watch out for, to pay attention to. And it's written in the imperative sense, meaning it's a direct command. So watch out, stand guard, stay away, see to it. 
and it's as a warning, a mandatory warning for the church of Colossae. And he, and he just finished talking about what? He talked about being rooted in Christ, being built up in Christ, and being established by Christ. So he really hit that foundation. We talked about how important it is to have a solid foundation in the Word of God so that you can stand firm, so, so that you're not swayed and taken captive by the philosophies we're going to talk about today. So being captive is a very interesting idea. So to captivate is to hold interest uh, and uh, and attention to or to charm. And a captive is somebody who's been taken prisoner, right? Or maybe better, someone who has lost control to another, right? We're seeing Russia is trying to take Ukraine captive. They're trying to take control of that nation. And so it really, when you put these two ideas together, it says, do not be charmed into becoming a prisoner of wrong thinking. So the, the world can be very charming in how things are presented, and it can be really easy to be captivated by the things of this world. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be captivated by the beauty of the world because it's a false beauty. It's not a real beauty. And, and the thinking that they're trying to get you to do, the philosophy they're trying to teach you is not biblical in nature. It's not godly in nature, and it will lead you to actually being enslaved to sin. And this word, as we said, the captive can also mean to be enslaved. So we are designed and created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and we are designed and created to be worshipers. We're designed to be captivated. Like, that is how God has made us. But we're made to be captivated by God, not the world. But we are all worshipers. I don't care if somebody says they're an atheist or an agnostic. Everyone worships something. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship things. Some people, but we all are built to worship. And we see this idea uh, elsewhere here in Romans 6. So Romans 6, 20 through 23. We always remember 23 a lot of times, but let's go ahead and read this whole little section. Uh, for, for when you were slaves of sin, not if, it's when you were slaves of sin. So if you're not a believer, you, you are a slave to sin. So when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of, these, of those things is what? Death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then he summarizes this in 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, right? In Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can see we can be enslaved to sin, which leads to death, captivated, taken captive to sin, which leads to death, or we can be enslaved, taken captive by God, which leads to eternal life, which actually is an oxymoron. We say enslaved, but it's actually a liberating. It's how we were made. We were actually set, we're, we're set free. So getting back to verse 8, what does Paul teach that makes it so easy to be enslaved to sin? Well, he first brings up this word philosophy, and the Greek is philosophia, philosophia, it's pretty close uh, to our word. And it means to love wisdom. And it's interesting uh, that, that this is actually the only place we see this in the Scripture. And it's also interesting that our English translation misses an article here. So it actually says the philosophy. So it's, it's the philosophy. It's not just philosophy in general. There is Christian philosophy when we approach Scripture, how we approach our lives. There's an aspect to, to love wisdom. We should love wisdom, right? So the wisdom of Scripture, we are to love. So if our world philosophy, our worldview is biblically based, then that's a good thing. But this is the philosophy. He's re referring to a false teaching, an erroneous teaching uh, the, of the false, false teachers in Colossae. And we're going to see it in a moment that this most likely was tradition-based, humanistic, 
and it also had probably a mystical component as well, and a, a, a elemental spirits we're going to see uh, as well. So this was not focused on Christ, it was focused on things of the world and man's ideas. So right after this, hitting on false philosophies or the philosophy, this false teaching, he says empty deceit. And empty deceit is deception with no real base. It's kind of like a mirage. You know, you, get, you go to the desert and you get real hot and you get parched and you're, and you're dehydrated. And what do people do? They see water and it's a mirage and it looks so real. It's like, ah, there it is, water. And then it's sand, right? And that is empty deceit. It, it has this promise. Oh, it's going to be great. You know, just do this and you're going to be fulfilled. Just, just spend more time on you. Just make more of yourself and then you're going to be fulfilled and happy and it's like eating sand. You know, it's like, oh, drinking sand. That's about what it tastes like when you become self-focused and you become selfish and you try to go me, 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 me. Well, then it just makes you more and more dark because the, the sl- there's never enough, right? The Bible says the eyes never have enough seeing, right? The mouth has enough tasting. We, we, can't, we can't get enough to be satisfied when we focus on ourselves. So it's empty to see. They're promising. These philosophies that we're talking about are promising, but they have no real value. They have no real substance. So these philosophies empty to see, as we move forward, they, they are according to human tradition, in your handouts there, and they're also according to the elemental spirits of the world. So human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. Well, first, what, what does it mean that these philosophies, this the philosophy, is based on human tradition, according to human tr- tradition? And the, the Greek word here means given from one to another. And we live in a world, you know, I love America in some aspects, but we are a world of tradition. You know, you look at families, especially in Appalachia. So we live in Appalachia, and you know, families are really big. If you're from here, you understand this maybe more so than if you're from somewhere else. But like, family stuff is passed down. Well, my grandmother told me, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, this is how we've always done it. We see this in churches, right? Churches are dying all across our area because they refuse to change. And we don't change the Word of God. And obviously, you've heard me preach. You know, I don't do that. But, but you know what? It's, it's okay that we meet here. You know, I, we are the body of Christ. The church is not the, the body. The, church, the building is not the body. We literally are the church, as corny as the song we are the church is it's very true theologically the holy spirit indwells us so there's some ways that sometimes we have to change it's okay to drink coffee in church i know a lot of churches no drinking you know you can't have it you can't have a drink because what if you mess up that sanctuary floor it's like you know we're missing the big picture so there are different ways to contextualize the gospel and to reach people and people can feel comfortable and that's okay yet we still can have a reverence for God, a reverence for his word, you know, and, and worship him in, in spirit and in truth. So tradition, uh, the Catholic Church is a, is a huge issue with this. Uh, there, there are great examples. There's so many traditions in the Catholic Church. Uh, they've got books on them, like, hey, this is what you do. And frankly, many of them fly right in the face of what the actual scripture says. The religiosity and humor tradi- tradition actually choke out the word of God, much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And obviously the, church, the, the Colossian church was battling similar things, right? The traditions of man were triumphing over the teaching of Christ and the gospel. Yet the church of Colossae was also battling a very strong arch nemesis. And if Satan cannot go to a church to make them embrace false teaching by, by traditions or humanism or really, you know, making much of man, he resorts to spiritual experiences. 
And this is a huge movement in the charismatic church across the world today, this mysticism. Uh, and and what, what this means is a, a, a spiritual experience oftentimes devoid of the Word of God. So, so it's these, well, I experienced this, so this is truth, right? And, and most of these are demonically inspired, to be honest. Uh, these experiences that do not, anything that you experience that is not consistent with the Word of God is not truth. We can experience God, obviously, right? But the way we experience God is according to His Word. He never contradicts His Word. So w- when you see these experiences that people claim they're elemental, spirit, ex- uh, elemental spirits, they're demonically based most of the time. And so note that these first two according to's uh, are, are satanic and demonic in nature. So the first one we saw, which was humanism, man's tradition, originated in the garden. We see that in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? We've said that a few times. Did God actually say? Satan knew right where to attack man first. And where was that? His pride, right? So that, that is where man struggles. Man and woman struggles with pride. Uh, so he, he went right after that. Satan is still very effective in using that, right? And the second, the elemental spirits, is directly demonic. And we see this in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Be ca- so be, be careful about how you work through philosophies. Uh, oftentimes, demonically inspired false teachers will appear really, really kind. They'll, re- they'll appear like they're saying things that really make sense. And uh, most of the time, they'll speak truth first, and they just start sprinkling in the air, and they start twisting things, and they start saying, did God really say that? Is, is sexuality really concrete and not fluid? Uh, is, is marriage really between a man and a woman? Because God is, is love, right? And they'll start taking things out of context. And they'll start really trying to squeeze in that into your heart and make you feel bad. Like, oh, you know what? You know what? God is love. And, so, and, and you'll start to bend on what the Word of God says. And this is what Jesus said about people like that. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. I didn't plan on preaching on this part, but do you, do you not get something really important right there? How many people do you hear today with the postmodern thinking say, we can't judge others? We're not to judge others, right? We're not to judge, you know, oh, I, you know, they, I know what they're doing, but I'm not going to say what they're doing is wrong, because who am I to judge? What does the last verse there say? Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. That is judgment. That is looking at a teacher and saying, oh, wow, and the closer I get to that tree, it, it looks really nice from a distance, but the closer that I approach that tree, that fruit's rotten. That is diseased fruit. There's worms popping out of it. There's just, it, it's darkness. It's dark. And you are to judge what you see there. It's like, okay, 
My job is not to stand in judgment of them like Jesus will, obviously, but my, judge is to, my, my job is to discern what is the truth and what is the error there. And there are many pastors, I'll use quotes here, air quotes, that are out there that are teaching things that look good from, the, from afar, but the closer you get, you start to look at their lives and you see there's diseased fruit on the tree. That there's so many signs that, that they're not right with the Lord themselves, and yet they're trying to shepherd other people. And they're teaching things, and they're, they're poking holes in the Word, saying, well, that's not really what that means. And, and they're, they're, they're performing all of this bad criticism of the Bible and saying, oh, you know, liberal theology, deliverance from God's Word, quote-unquote. It becomes, our, our job is to stand against false teaching and to fight against that. So how are we to stand against these forces, and how can we protect our churches from these forces. We'll get to that in a moment when we focus on Christ. Yet before we move on, it's one thing to talk about the Colossian church and to say, hey, you know, Paul is warning these people, hey, watch out for these guys that are, that are preaching on human traditions and their hu- humanism, and, and they're preaching about mystical experiences and these demonic experiences that are going on in that church. But what about us today? Do, do, do we see false teachings today? Yes. Uh, actually, I would say we, we see false teachings today probably more than they saw them back then, to be honest. They're, they're, they're going through our churches like wildfire, to be honest. And time would suffice to be able to cover them all today. But there's one in particular that I think is really an all-encompassing movement uh, in our church today uh, that is very dangerous. And, and it's the emergent church. If, if anybody's not heard about it, we're going to talk about it for a second. And this emergent church, we've, we've mentioned postmodernism, postmodernity, um, and, and just how dangerous this way of thinking is to our churches today, and how it's kind of a root, a bitter root that has developed in our church that is, that is stemming tons of false teaching throughout our area. This is a thinking of relative or personal truth, as we've mentioned before. And it's your truth, your relative truth, your personal experience, what other people think triumphing over what the Word of God explicitly says. And at its, at its core, it's experience over reason. So what you feel, what you experience matters more than what you read and how you think. When, God, when, you, when you study God's Word, it's how did that make you feel? Not what did it actually say. And, and that experience versus reason thing is just a, a huge fatal flaw in thinking because there's no true truth right? Truth is relative because one time you read a truth and you feel good about it, the other time you read a truth and you feel bad, well, one time it's okay and the other time it's not, right? And this first fatal flaw of this movement that's been seen is a predisposition toward universalism, which we've also talked about. So this view that there are multiple ways to God and not only way and one way in this emergent church movement has really harnessed that power and moved forward. And because their experience and their feelings tell them that because God is love, he would never send anyone to hell, because that makes them feel bad, right? And so when I, when I think of someone going to hell, I feel sad. And so since I feel sad, that must not be a true statement, because things that make me feel sad aren't really true. And that way of thinking is continually pushing into this emergent church movement and infiltrating other churches as well. Their desire for unity and ecumenicism, you know, coexisting between different churches and different faiths leads them to, de- to deny and call Jesus and call him a liar. As he sp- says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So their experience and their love for others and their love for themselves, in all honesty, triumphs over 
their love for Jesus. Jesus becomes a relative truth, and they make Jesus into who they want him to be. One example of this, I hate to name drop. I'm going to mention two names. There are a whole host of names. One of these has really caused a lot of issues, so I'm really going to, I feel like it's good to know who to avoid with teaching. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. It's uh, a horrible book. I wouldn't recommend reading it, but here is a quote from his book. It, It has been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. And moving forward, he states, Whatever objections a person may have of the universalist view, and there are many, one has to admit that it is fitting, proper, and Christian to long for it. So here we see a former pastor, author, and speaker arguing for universalism. Like we need to encourage universalism. We need to long that that is the truth. And other places in this, he actually even says that, that you can, if you go to hell, you can get out. You can choose God even then. So I mean, there's just so much false teaching in this that is nowhere in the Bible. Uh, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, is what Jesus says. It is a place where there's forever weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a horrible place, and we don't want anyone to go there. That's why we tell people about Jesus every week. We say, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Put your faith and trust in Jesus so that you don't experience that. Sadly, many spoke out very positively of his book and other books that he's had, too. This is one. I personally find his take on theology refreshing. He challenges me to take a fresh look at Bible passages and principles, and I feel my faith has deepened as a result. My question would be, your faith in what? What has deepened? Your faith in who has deepened? Not Jesus. Your faith in yourself? Your faith in Rob Bell? Your faith in false teachers has has, has grown, right? Beware of someone, when you read a book or you read anything, beware of someone saying they have a new finding today. You know, the church was founded how long ago? 2,000 years. So the church has been going on for 2,000 years. Beware of a man or a woman that stands up and says, I have a new revelation. We have the word of God, which is complete. We've already seen it. If you look at the end, it says if you add to or take away from it, you're going to have the plagues described in the book of Revelation put upon you. So we know that we have the, the, the inerrant, perfect, complete word of God in 66 books as a canon here. And people, godly men and women, have been reading this for, for two millennia, 2,000 years. And somebody today wants to stand up and say, I have a new finding. I have a new way to look at this scripture that no one has ever looked at it before. I, I can say that there's almost a 100% chance that it is false teaching. I mean, there may be one out there in a billion, but it is almost a 100% chance. So if you see a, a book that says a new way to look at scripture, throw in the trash. You know, because like, that is b- about where it needs to be. Uh, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. The best way to read the scripture is to read the scripture. Uh, you know, you don't need somebody to tell you what it says. It says what it says. You go with it. And, and if there's a historical thing, you know, there are some things you can look at there. But especially the New Testament, a lot of times you don't need anything else. I mean, it, it is very, very clear. Or take this one. This one kind of, man, it's just eerie. It literally, it's about, this is about Rob Bell's book again. It literally changed my life. And I wish everyone would read it because it is liberating and deeply enlightening. Rob Bell is a very lucid and practical writer. 
He literally writes like he is sitting across the table from you having a conversation. His writing style was so friendly to my brain that I could not put it down. Is that not eerie? His writing style was so friendly to my brain that I could not put it down. This is the heart of the emergent church movement. Liberation from the Word of God. I am set free from the Word of God. I don't have to obey anybody but myself. I am God. God can just give me some suggestions. I'll take the ones I like. I'll throw out the other ones. I am liberated. I'm set free. But yet, we know that they're, they're slaves to sin. And this guy, Rob Bell, is just the kind of guy to help with his wolf in sheep's clothing, his charisma. Uh, beware of somebody who, who just speaks with such charisma. And you know, praise God, I'm just not really gifted with that. And so I don't feel like that, that that's a huge thing for me. But some people, man, they can just speak and they can convince you that the sky is green. And man, they are just so smooth with the way that they present things. And this final sentence, man, it just shows the demonicness of this teaching. Yeah, his writing style was so friendly to my brain that I could not put it down. Is that not such an incredible description of demonic teaching? When someone is preaching a humanistic manifesto, you better believe the flesh is going to eat it right up. You know, so unbelievers, when they read something, oh man, and frankly, even some believers, when they read something and it's humanistic, we all still struggle with sin. So other teachers have also come out with positive comments about this book, such as Brian McLaren. Uh, who didn't just stop there with universalism. He's continued to move along with Rob Bell into relative truth and sexuality. These two men have argued that homosexuality is not a sin, that God is love. And McLaren went so far that he led a commitment ceremony over his son and his son's male partner. Sadly, men like this are running rampant in the teen world. There's some thought that actually the youth ministry movement has it has been what catapulted the emergent church movement. Uh, and, and, and this emergent church movement continues to influence our teens and our youth with their books. Love Wins has a teen edition to try to really encourage young people to read this and, and to embrace this postmodern thinking and this relative personal truth and that your truth is your truth and my truth is my, my truth. And even if they contradict and they're completely different, that's ah, right for you. Right? It's right for you and it's right for me. Beware of this false brand of Christianity. It is not true Christianity. And sadly, youth culture today is all about being captivated by the world, right? And if you talk to many youth ministers and youth pastors, what they'll say is, we're going to leverage that to get people to come, right? So we're going to use the captivation to the world in a seeker-sensitive way to get people to come to our youth group. So our youth group's going to look like the world. We're going to do things the world does. We're going to go to movies that the world goes to because we want to bring everybody into this umbrella, right? And the youth group becomes this separate group from the church, right? Uh, oftentimes they have their own service on Sunday. They've got their own building, and they're doing their own thing. They have this pastor who is over them that is really not under any authority in the church. They, become, they, they never actually become part of the church itself, and they're just kind of somewhere else. And because of this, the solid doctrines of the church and the understandings of ecclesiology, which is the study of the church and how it functions, never take any root of their lives. So when they graduate high school, they never actually were a part of the church to begin with. And we look around and we're like, where are the youth? Where are the young people? Right? And we look around here, we have some young people, but we probably have just as many older, if not more older people than we have younger people. And we're like, well, where did they go? Where did our kids go? Where are they at? 
They never were there. They never were a part of the church. They may have come to church, but they went to their own place, their own little building, their own little hangout spot. They hung out. They listened to music they shouldn't have been listening to. They watched movies they shouldn't have been watching. They learned things that were probably doctrinally erroneous. And what happens? They don't come back. And we wonder, we're just pulling our hair out. Like, where are the kids? Where'd all the kids go? Of course, we shouldn't be surprised when the data aligns with these findings. According to a LifeWay research study in 2007, they looked at 20 to 29-year-olds and said, where do they go? You know, what's going on? And what they saw was only 11% of this group who regularly attended church as children up through youth, only 11% were going to church in college. 11. And they were like, well, what happened? You know, it, was, it must have been university. It must have been college. It must have been these liberal professors that talked our kids out of the faith. Absolutely, that's a huge thing. So watch where you send your kids. Watch where you send your kids. I'll just say that. I'm not going to get into controversy there, but, but watch where you send your kids and make sure they're ready to handle the garbage that's going to be thrown at them like I was thrown at in a public university. Evolution and all the garbage that comes in the science department. Watch, watch there. But, but on further questioning, they weren't lost in college. Some of them were, but most of them weren't. Most of them were lost when they were this age, when they were in elementary school and, and middle school. By then, up to 90% by the time they were in middle school didn't believe in the doctrines that their church was teaching, many of which had no idea what the doctrines even were. To be honest, they didn't even know what, 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 what does our church teach on this? What does? Because they weren't a part of the church, friends. They, they never were in the church. And so when they walked away from the church, they, didn't, they never really were. They didn't really walk away. They just went and continued in their postmodern thinking and their fraternities and sororities that they found on campus that were just like the youth ministry that they were a part of. And many may balk at the fact that we don't have a youth ministry here. We don't have a kids ministry here. And who knows what the Lord's going to do in the, in the future at our church. But, but we want to be a church where everyone is a part of it. From young to old, we want everybody to be on the same page theologically, scripturally, and as a family. We want our kids to respect the older adults. We want the older adults to love the children and, and be welcoming the new generation who's going to take the reins next we want to be a church family where everyone is a part of it, where everyone is valued, that we're not separated based on life stage or interests or desires, uh, but that we are a church that works together. One body, many parts, right? We are one body, many parts, and that's many ages too. We're different ages. Friends, I know I've been really harshly real with the youth culture of our world. And I want to, for clarity and for, for grace, I want to speak out on those that do it right guys like Pastor Travis, a good shepherd, he's solid theologically. They go through the word of God. It's not just a, hey, come and have fun. He hits the scripture dip, like really, really, really deep. And there are others out there that do it, but I will say these godly men are exceptions and not the rule from my experience. So let's pray for those guys. I'm not saying that there's not a, pro not a place with it, but I will say the way that it's done in most American churches today is not correct. Friends, are we captivated by the world Let's get back to verse 8 here. Are, are, are we captivated by human tradition or experientialism or mysticism, or are we captivated by Christ? There's only a couple of ways of thinking here, right? I highly suggest that you don't investigate every single false teaching out there because it will spend the rest of your life doing that because Satan is working all the time, he and his demons, to twist the Scripture 
But I highly suggest that you know the Word of God, that you study it deeply so that you can recognize, no, that's not what James says. The book of James says this. Oh, no, 1 Corinthians says this. No, like that should be, when somebody says something, you should be running through your brain. You should be like, no, nope, nope, not, not true, not true, not true. And sometimes you have to look it up. You have to kind of research a little bit. But when somebody says something from the pulpit that is just like, eh, I don't, I, I've never heard that before. If you've never heard, heard it before, look it up. Make sure it's really there. Uh, I think that's a really good way to put it, too. So uh, as we've been preaching and teaching through this first point of the sermon, you can be captivated by the world. But I pray that you're not. I pray that no one here says, I'm captivated by the world. I pray that instead we get to our second point here. You can be captivated by the wonderful. You can be captivated by the wonderful. Join me as I read verses 9 to 10 again. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul just ended verse 8, according to Christ. After talking about according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, not according to Christ. And now we're moving into Christ. And man, verse, uh, verse 9 just goes right into what we were talking about last uh, or probably a few weeks ago, envisioning the invisible. Uh, for in him, the whole fullness of the, d- the deity dwells bodily, right? Well, if you remember ver- chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, I'm just going to read it again to help us understand uh, where we just came from. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That is Christ, right? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul knows as he teaches about these philosophies and this empty deceit according to to man's traditions, to human traditions, according to elemental spirits or demonic forces or satanic forces. Paul knows there's one answer that will help protect you from those things, and that answer is Christ. And he reminds them that, that Christ is creator God. Christ is 100% God. Christ is the authority. He is the foundation. Remember when we talked about Christ and who he is? Everything was formed by him, through him, and for him. He knows the higher view of Christ that we have, the higher view of God that we have, the lower view of man, the lower view of traditions, the lower view of satanic and demonic forces, because he is above all. He is the ruler and authority. Before we get into um, verse 10, we see this, you have been filled in him. This phrase means to be complete or or brought to fulfillment. What this means is that your life before Christ was as empty as the false teaching we saw in verse 8. It was empty. It looked full but it was like a mirage. Talk to many people who have been very wealthy, very powerful, but not had God. I've talked about Chuck Colson a couple of weeks ago. That was a man that looked full. He was rich. He was powerful. He was up there with Nixon, and, and he had all kinds of power, and yet he was empty. It was a mirage. He was miserable with where he was at. Through salvation in Jesus Christ, you're given a reason for your living. The ultimate fulfillment of any life on earth is to be with Christ and to have him as your Savior. And this phrase, I love this phrase, you and you have been filled in him. And you have been 
filled in. It, it's a past tense. It's, it's already happened and it continues to happen now. How amazing is that? So those who have fully put their trust in Jesus Christ, you have been filled and you continue to be filled and you will always be filled with the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? We are not perfected, right? Anybody here perfect? I don't, I don't think so. I'll put my hand down. Definitely not there. But we are perfectly justified before Christ because of his imputed righteousness, his righteousness that is placed upon us. How amazing is that? Yet we know that, that even though we have this fulfillment, we, we know that we've been filled with Jesus Christ. We know it's not always going to be easy, right? That we're going to have struggles, that we're going to struggle with sin. We're going to have external struggles because other people are going to sin against us, even in the church body at times, right? I mean, it's part of being a family. Sometimes family sins against each other, right? It's tough. But we know that everything that happens to us as believers will be, will be used for good. Right, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And remember, it's his purpose. A lot of times we read that verse and we think, oh, yeah, everything's going to work out for my good, for my purpose. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. You misread the last two words there. His purpose. Your purpose might, might be to be healthy, wealthy, everything's great, never have any injuries, never have any trauma, never have any problems happen. But his purpose may be different for you, right? What did he say about Paul? What was Paul's purpose? When, when, it, when he blinds him on the road to Damascus, he, he, he says, this guy's going to suffer. He tells Ananias, you can tell him how much he's going to suffer for my sake. God's purpose for Paul was suffering. That's tough. God's purpose for Jesus Christ was suffering and death on the cross. Paul beheading right? So sometimes his purpose is not what our purpose would be if we got to plan it ourselves. But for those who love God, it will work together for your good, meaning eternal good. It means it's going to be worked. You're going to have joy and peace. You're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. You're going to be walking with Christ even when things seem like they're turmoil. You know, you'll be like Paul when he's writing the book of Philippians and he's in prison or he's writing the book of Colossians. He's in prison and he's giving thankfulness and he's saying, God is awesome. You know, look at what he's done. Look what he's done for you, and he's encouraging others. Instead of being like, woe is me, I'm still stuck in prison. You know, it would be great if I was out. This isn't what I want to do. He's focused on Christ, and he has that joy and that fulfillment. Our job is to glorify him. And at the end here, we see that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. This word head, we've mentioned before, is kephale, and it can, it can refer to Lord or supreme which is exactly what qualifies right after this. He is the head of all rule and authority. It means he is over all. There is nothing that is not under his rule. Right? He is powerful, and he rules with unopposed glory and unopposed authority. The great commentator F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on Colossians, said this, Those who are united to Christ have no need to pay their respects to forces over which he is vindicated his preeminence. Hmm. What that says is you don't have to answer to human traditions. You don't have to answer to demonic and satanic forces. You don't have to answer, you don't have to be dominated by these forces of evil because you have been vindicated by his preeminence. Preeminence meaning he is above all. He is before all. He is, he is authority. He has authority over all. And we do not need to pay our respects, to bow our knee to false teachers, to false gods, to demons, to human tradition, right? 
So what philosophies and empty deceit have you paid your respects to? What do you do today, even? What false teachers have you paid your respects to? Uh, Meaning, who or what have you taken as an authority greater than the Word of God? It's a tough question to answer. Is it what your mom said? Is it what your dad said? Is it what your grandparents told you? Is it what your pastor growing up told you? Is it what your friends tell you? Is it what, the, what CNN tells you? Sorry, couldn't, couldn't resist on that one. Um, I'll stop there before I get in trouble. So the devil's cunning, and he will, he will sneak false teachings in. They don't come with neon lights saying, Hey, false, right here. Don't listen to me. I'm, I'm a false teacher, right? That's not how he comes, right? He comes as an angel of light, masquerading as an angel of light, right? He's a fallen angel, and he can, he can appear with very beautiful appearance, a very beautiful idea. Sneaks in by culture, traditions, upbringing, experiences. And I pray that we repent of our sinfulness and turn toward Christ and his word as our ultimate authority. Today we end with one of, if not the most important question of your life. What will you allow yourself to be captivated by? What will you be captive to? Sorry for my the slides a little bit off there. What, what will you be captivated by? Or who will you be captivated to? So, brother and sister, we are, we, are all, we are all captivated by something. As we talked about before, we are made to worship. We are created to be worshipers. What will it be for you? Is it false teachings of the world? Is it lusts of the flesh? Is it the ideas of man? Is it the culture? Is it your experience? This is what I've experienced in life. Or will it be the person of Jesus Christ? Being captivated by Christ is the only way that we can truly live in freedom. And I pray that each of you have been set free from the bonds of, of sin, the, 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 the chains that go around our arms and our legs, the, 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 the weight that we carry on our back everywhere we go, that we can't measure up, that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, that we're not whatever, because it's all about us. I pray that if you have not accepted the free gift of salvation, you haven't believed that Jesus Christ is God made flesh, that he dwelt among us, lived a perfect, sinless life, that he rose from the dead three days later, that he's now at the right hand of the Father, and that he's ready with open arms to draw you to him and save your soul. You only need to repent of your sins and turn toward him. Turn away from your sins and turn toward him. I pray that if you haven't done that, that you do that today. Today is the day of salvation, my friends. And I pray that if you are a believer, you're like, yes, I'm a believer, but sometimes I get captivated by the world. Sometimes I get captivated by my flesh, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, right? The ear never has enough hearing. The eyes never have enough seeing. And sometimes I catch myself spending a lot of time being captivated by things of this world. I pray that you repent, that you turn from that, and that you pray that God helps the sparkle of the things of this earth, the sparkle and the attractiveness of the things of this earth, Pray that, pray that he helps it become pale in comparison to the glory to be revealed, the glory of Jesus Christ. Repent of your disposition of idolatry that we all sometimes struggle with. Pray that Jesus helps you see himself more clearly and see himself as the preeminent above all. 
I think we all can relate to the hymn writer Robert Robinson who wrote in 1758 a hymn called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. May he be the apple of our eye and the captivation of our affections, church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are prone to wonder. Even those who are believers here, we are prone to wonder. We struggle with being an idolater of all kinds of things, and we have to repent daily that we don't worship you the way that we should. We don't love you the way that we should. And so, God, I just pray that you forgive us, help us to repent and turn from those things, help us to see you as the beautiful, preeminent creator that you are. Help us to worship you. If there's anyone here who hasn't put their faith and trust in you, God, I'd love to talk to them after the service. I'd love to sit down and explain what it means to be a true follower of you, God. May we be a church that, that, that fights against, that stands against the false teachers and the false teachings of this world and stands firm on the Scripture. It would be a church of grace and truth. God, I pray for all those churches right now that are under the teachings of, of false teachers. I pray that you be with those people there, and if there will be any true believers, that you help them to get out of those churches. And if that not be your will, that you displace that, that teacher and you put someone who preaches your word there. God, may we have a revival of our churches turning to you and your word and not to man's ideas. May we, may we stop feeding the culture to the church and start feeding the word of God to your people. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. Amen. Have a blessed week.